Maddie reached out and he said, hey, you guys want to be on a TV show called Dogglebox? Look, I've always wanted to be on TV. I think I'd be good at it. Sign me up, whatever it is. On behold, they brought us on the show and that's it. The rest is history and it changed my life forever. It was the hardest, hardest point in my life. I never took a day off for two years straight. I had people steal from me. I had a guy saying he's going to the toilet and never came back. I've experienced anything and everything you could ever think of when it came to running that business. I'm never ever working a day again in construction or going back to uni ever again. And at that point, I was like, all right, what do I need to do to start this cafe? Who do I need to speak to? And that's when I buried my head into research. I took a step back to my ego and to my salary from making so much money to making nothing for two years. But I knew that 10 years from now, I'll be where I want to be in everything I've ever prayed for and manifested. And it's come. Everything that I've prayed for, everything that I've manifested has played out. The people in my life to everything that I've had because I believe that if I continue on the course that I'm continuing on, it has to give. But I knew if I kept going, it's inevitable. It's going to pay off. You just got to keep pushing through. Just quickly before we get started, guys, if you've been enjoying the podcast, can I please ask that you consider leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you've been listening. It really helps the podcast grow. All right. We're actually, it's actually our first podcast back in Australia. So first home game for a while. I like to call these home games. We had some technical difficulties with the, the podcast in, in, in Europe, but we won't mention that, Joe. Um, so this episode is someone I've been looking forward to speaking to for a while. You know, he's, he's living the international life. We couldn't get him before we left, but we've got him now. Jad, he stitched me up, wouldn't tell me how to say his last name. I'm going to say Nematala. How close? 99%. Fuck, I'll take 99%. Yeah, so Nematala. Nematala. See, yeah. I even put too much sauce on yeah, it to try nah, and be too West in Sydney. good, man. Very I did all right. I did all right. Surprised. So the reason I want to have you on, a lot of people that know you will know you from Gogglebox, obviously. Yeah. Um, obviously, I know you, your work that you've done with, with you and, and some people I know, but when, when I looked into your always heaps of research, now you said you're coming in, you're coming in like completely empty slate, but I know a lot about you. Okay. Um, but the thing that I really enjoyed and I kind of want to get out of you is like hearing your perspective, the way you view life and business. Cause I'll kind of want to get inside your head, you know, we'll, we'll figure out your story, yep. but for the people listening, the way you see opportunity, I think is really unique. And you have like a really, um, you just have a really positive view on life and like, you don't let the norm, you know, tie you down. You don't, you don't conform to, to the normal life. Now we're speaking off camera, obviously you're from Western Sydney as well. A big part of your story. I want to know like growing up in Western Sydney, obviously Lebanese background, how much did growing up in the area with like surrounded by so much, you know, fucking like just, just so much culture and so much, you know, drama at times, how much do you feel like that shaped you and, and everything you've gone on to become as a man now? Well, thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. It's been an absolute, I would say, pleasure because I've been looking forward to it. Nice, yeah. And to be honest, I am walking into here blind, but that's the way I like it. Not knowing anything, having an <clears throat> awesome man-to-man organic kind of chat, very natural. So I appreciate you boys um, having me on. For sure. Man, Western Sydney has shaped who I am today. Like growing up in the area, we call it the area. The area. Like the what area? area? No, no. Punch the bowl, area. Yeah, yeah, the area. Punch bowl has shaped who I am today. Yep. You know, you're a product of your surroundings. Mm. That's what I believe you know, from everything from like your neighbors, yep. you know, you know, we grew up with my uncle across the road, you know, family, friends on either side of us. We knew everyone in the street. Um, so, you know, it was, it felt safe. It felt like a community. You know, my parents migrated from Lebanon to flee a war and they came into a community. So like, you know, the whole saying of borrowing, you know, milk or salt from your neighbors, that was true. We had no fence line between our neighbors. Uh, we were always at each other's houses. You know, my my house was um, 
a halfway house like Central Station. <laughs> you know, people um, never kind of rang to come over. Our, our doors front and back were always open. So I feel like being around that community vibe and, you know, obviously the food, the culture and, and the hustle mentality um, of, has had a lot to do with, you know, who I am today. Yeah, that's where I wanted to get at. Like, where do you think was the moment you can pinpoint in your life? Obviously, I know your father's been a big influence with his work ethic and business influenced you, but thinking back to your childhood, like what moment or or what was it? What experience? Like, do you remember thinking back, like uh, the normal path isn't for me. I'm going to create my own life. You've made, you've clearly made a decision that you're going to make life as fun and enjoyable as possible. Do you remember when that seed started to grow into, into, you know, what has flourished today? I've always been very curious um, and it's a good question because growing up in, in Western Sydney at that time, you know, I went to an all Lebanese school, uh, or, you know, everyone around me was the same, same color hair. We believed in the same religion. It was a Catholic school. Everyone around me, around me was Lebanese. I never kind of grew up with any friends outside of the Lebanese culture. And that's all we knew and that's all I knew. So. I think I was always very curious to see what else is there out there. Surely there's more to life. Surely there's more than just, you know, getting into construction and getting married at, you know, 20, 23, 24 years old and at pumping kids by 26 or, or whatnot. And I was always like, nah, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. There has to be other things out there. And I was always very curious. I started jigging school, um, you know, catching trains to like Bondi and Coogee and, uh, it was mainly to see women, but, um, you know, just you know, going around and exploring. And then I just felt, you know, when I went to uni at 18, which only lasted a term or, or whatnot, I, st- I got a little bit of a taste for like, okay, there's more to than just punch bowl. And, um, yeah, and then I got into nightclubs and that, that was game over from there. Yeah, like. We'll get into all that. I I didn't fucking intro you properly because I was too worried about pronouncing your last name. But for those who don't know, obviously you've been on Gogglebox for nine seasons now, maybe 10 by now, something like that. Uh, I don't know. I think even more than that, to be honest. Who knows how many seasons? So you're you're a a TV personality, you're a much loved personality in that world, but also like your business career and the way that you've like, you know, progressed is really interesting to me. And we'll get into all that. Like you said, you you spent a lot of your 20s in in the nightlife, you know, organizing events and and promoting clubs and, and, and whatnot. But that uni experience, it's really funny. I lasted probably about the same as you. When you went there and you went to uni, talk to me about that experience and when was the moment that you you realized this ain't for me and I'm gonna I'm gonna leave? I say education and uni and TAFE, I call it as a toxic ex-girlfriend. <laughs> yes. You know, it's like you keep going back to her, but you know she's not right for you. That was my experience with university and TAFE. She's a toxic ex-girlfriend. I, I kept trying to go back thinking it was the right thing to do. And, you know, she, you know, it was the, she was the right one or whatnot. And then I clearly realized it's, it's not for me. Like I'm not the person to study, you know, I can't really sit down and focus and study and, and put my mind, you know, to, to studying and writing. And I was pretty good at school when I applied myself in subjects that I loved, you know, as legal studies, business studies, commerce and whatnot. But I quickly realized like, what am I studying for? Like, what's my purpose? Why am I here? What am I learning? And then I said, no, nah, there's got to be more to life. And I just felt like at that point, I don't want to fucking go work for anyone because I don't think I would last working for anyone. They'll probably fire me within, within the week. 
So I thought like I've just got to make something for myself from such a young age and I just knew straight away. Because when did you go to uni? Because I obviously am doing my research. I knew yeah. you had a little bit of money. You must have been been doing a little bit of work before uni. Yeah. You were paying people to do your assignments, yeah. to do your work and shit for you. So yeah. did you not go to uni straight after school? Yeah, so, Is that you went back after a little bit? Yeah, so I, um, I went straight out of school. I went to uni. I got accepted to do civil engineering at Penrith, Kingswood. I lasted, I think, maybe a term. Right. I'm like, fuck this. They started talking about physics and shit and all this <laughs> stuff. And I'm like, I have no idea what's yeah, going on yeah. here. The drive was too far for me and the women weren't hot enough to keep me <laughs> Right. And I was like, I'm done. So I left and went to go do, do TAFE. Mm -hmm. Ended up going to like, I think I got kicked out of two TAFEs. Do like construction tapes, sort to of do construction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To do, I got kicked out of two or three TAFEs. I ended up going to four or five TAFEs. Wow. I went to Ultimo, Hornsby, Granville and Miller. What were you getting kicked out for just not applying yourself, taking uh, it seriously? Probably things I can't say on the podcast. Yeah, but yeah. like the, yeah, I was just, man, I just wasn't applying myself. I was a bit naughty. I was a class clown. I was just, I was, just, you know, I was doing things that I shouldn't be doing. I was coming and going. And then I realized this TAFE thing's even too hard for me. So I ended up doing a correspondence at my own time. And then in, during that time, I was running nightclubs and whatnot. And then I realized that 24, 25, um, when I finished up with the clubs, okay, I was seeing a girl at the time. She was like, man, you're so good at marketing and creating concepts. You've got like a natural knack for it. You've never been taught. You know, you're, you've been killing it across the nightclub scene for the last five years. But why don't you do something else? And I said, what the fuck am I going to do? I don't know anything else. She's like, go to uni and study marketing. And I started, What do you think when she says uni? What goes to your head? I was like, fuck, here we go again. <laughs> this toxic ex-girlfriend's coming back to me. Yeah. So I started researching, you know, marketing and whatnot. And I was 24 at the time. So I would have finished by 28. I was like, you know, and this is no disrespect to anyone that's on a salary or whatnot. But I was like, fuck, by the time I finish, I'm going to be earning 55, 60 grand as a marketing graduate. Man, I'm earning that in three months at the moment. Yeah. Or four months. What I was doing, I go, how am I ever going to go? to be doing this stuff. Yeah. Anyway, long behold, because that's what your brainwashed to do, I go, I enroll, and the same shit happens all over again. Yeah. See, even, even like there's a lesson in what you were talking about with the tapes bouncing around, like getting kicked out or not applying yourself, like because people aren't good at school, like that traditional or uni, that traditional confines of you come to school, you show up in, you learn what we tell you, you regurgitate it as we tell you. People will not enjoy that or they won't have a good experience, they won't have good marks. And like society tries to like discard them like, oh, you're useless, you won't become yeah, anyone. Yeah. But the fact I that cop, like- I cop Yeah, that. but look at- I cop that from close family and friends, to be honest. Yeah, well, what's yeah. it like in the Lebanese culture with like following like the construction or the uni or the trade? Like is it pretty rigid a lot of the times with oh, what the expectations are or- Back then, you're born into a trade and you're born yeah. into construction or you're born into what your family kind of- I've already established, you know, I'm the eldest son of an immigrant who's come to Australia with nothing, has built an incredible business. So somewhat I feel the responsibility that I've got to take over this business, which I did, and I did it really well, but it, but it reached a point where imagine you're a father and you've got your 20, 21-year-old son who's super ambitious. <clears throat> Sorry, one sec. Cocoa nibs <laughs> with my cheese and pudding fucking stuck. So imagine you're a father 
and your 20, 21-year-old son comes to you and says, right, dad, we're restructuring the whole business. We're going to start, you know, opening an office, hiring a, um, a secretary. Um, we're going to start creating EOIs, business cards, uh, call flutes, signage, website, the whole lot. We're going to run it professionally. And then I start going crazy. And this guy's thinking, what the fuck is he? Yeah. What's he doing? Does he know what he's talking about? We're going to run teams. You're going to get off the tools. You're going to be, you're going to be a foreman. We're going to do this, this, and this. I had this big dream, which I started to implement and he started to see the results. But I was getting met with a bit of resilience from him and my mom, which I can't blame him for. Imagine your 20 year old son coming to you with this, with all these ideas or 21, 22 at the time. You're going to be like, no, 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 we're good. We're happy in our own way. So that's when at that point I was like, I've done everything I can and I need to move on. But yeah, you're back to your question. You're born into taking over or becoming what your family have established. So there's that kind of responsibility or that sense of, I wouldn't say it's a burden, but you know, expectation where you've got to follow that. And now sometimes it works for people and sometimes it doesn't. Now it worked for me for a point. But in the background, I was like, if I can take this to the next level my way or, you know, in collaboration, sure. But it didn't really play out that way, to be honest. Especially like that expectation as the eldest son. Now, might be skipping ahead a little bit, but it's all good. That moment, that conversation where you decide like, look, dad, um, it's obviously probably best for both of us in our relationship if we don't continue. But the, having that expectation and coming from like a, a Lebanese family, worked so hard, sacrificed everything I imagined to get where we are today, yeah. to then be like, sorry, I'm all good. How, how, how does that play out? So they were always very supportive because, you know, they never really understood what I was doing. I think they thought at one stage I was dealing drugs <laughs> because I was always spending time yeah. in nightclubs and doing all, yeah. this, all that stuff. They knew I was, I was legit and they knew, you know, I was a good, I was a good kid. Um, and then obviously I was still helping my father out in the construction business and still had a bit of my own clients while I was, you know, doing the clubs and doing the marketing at uni. And then it came to a point one day where an opportunity kind of presented itself as I was on the way to uni, I saw a site, uh, for a, for a cafe that I'd known about and then, um, cut the story short. I met with the person did a deal not having worked in hospitality or ever drank coffee before, much coffee. And I remember coming home after uni one day and I said to my mum and dad while they were sitting down, I think having a shisha or, you know, whatever, watching TV. And I said, I'm opening up a cafe and I'm never ever going to work in construction ever again. I'm sorry, but I'm done. I've left uni. I ghosted uni. That's it. And they all looked at me like, what do you mean? You're opening a what? I'm like, I'm opening a cafe. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I've got enough money to live for the next six months and to open up this place. I'm done. I'm never, ever working a day again in construction or going back to uni ever again. And that was that point. And you were certain at that point, like you knew you had the, the knowing internally to know that. I just knew that I had to do it. So I took six months off. I ghosted uni completely. They thought I was dead. They didn't know what happened to me. sign out or fucking whatever. Just ghosted completely. Completely ghosted. Don't even know Father Hex there. <laughs> don't even know anything. And at that point, I was like, all right, what do I need to do to start this cafe? Who do I need to speak to? 
And that's when I buried my head into research. So you had, obviously you're very like entrepreneurial, just naturally your nature, but did you know, like you, you said you didn't even drink coffee, you weren't a massive maybe, obviously food's a big, like a big part of your culture, yeah. so you would have been surrounded by that. But yeah. had you ever thought one day I'll open a restaurant, a bar, a cafe, anything like uh, that in the I've years always, before? I've always been interested in hospitality and coming from like a, the club's background where it consisted of me creating concepts, mm. uh, coming up with ideas, execution. That's, uh, I had a natural knack for it. Like, and then I was like, okay, how do I translate that into more of a larger offering? And when it comes to food, but the funny thing is I remember like in my late twenties or just before I turned 30, when all this stuff started popping online, you know, cause I, I lived through an era before pre Facebook, we call yeah, it yeah, right about marketing and what you should do and promoting. And I'm like, Fuck, I know all this stuff. I used to implement all this stuff, but I was never taught. So it was very strange. It was like a light bulb moment for me thinking, how do I know these things or how do I implement these things when I was running my promotions and events company without ever being taught anything? Yeah. It was crazy how I, you know, came up with all this knowledge and ideas and stuff. I think I was actually born to do what I was doing, to be honest. So you didn't, you weren't like a big reader, big poet, like you nah. didn't, how did, does it all came nah. naturally, you figuring it out on the fly? Just, well, back then, I didn't read, yep. to be honest. I never listened to podcasts, completely, completely honest. Wasn't much research back then. We're talking, you know, 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. There wasn't, you know, what there is right now, like courses and whatnot. Well, actually, no, the clubbing promoting those was from 2005. I just figured, okay, it was all psychology-based intuition, to yeah. be honest. It was like- Human behavior, like, yeah. Human behavior, you know, what do we do? Um, how do we pick a trend? How do we capture people? How do we get them into the venue? How do we create the best experience? How do we create, you know, FOMO? How do we create, you know, demand? How do we create the fear? You know, obviously I said FOMO, fear of missing out. Um, how do we then follow up with that? You know, uh, back then it was different. That You know, now you capture data through a funnel, right? Mm -hmm. Back then, I would hire two, three girls in a nightclub, pay them $20 an hour cash, and they'd go around capturing everyone's data. Wow. Yeah, yeah, with a clipboard, a little light on it, and they'd yeah. go around capturing people's data. So there was, you know, flyering. I would do 50,000 flyers a week. You know, I would personally sometimes smash out 25,000 flyers myself, you know, walking 20, 30,000 steps a day. Wow. Just putting nuts. them on cars, outside venues and whatnot. You had to be a lot more resourceful back in the day, right? Because it's not like, there's, oh, no, there's no there's no clear game plan back then, you know. We're very fucking spoiled today. Mm. Anyone that says they can't make it or they don't have an opportunity today is a fucking lazy cunt. Yeah. You know, try and work in marketing back in the day or try to get your product out or your service out back in the day. You're, that's proper hustle. Today you've got access to five, six social media apps. You've got, you know, courses. You've got mentors. You've got everything available for you. It's just about comes down to if you want to do the fucking work or not. Yeah, it's a big debate as well, like about, you know, you, you sound like everyone says this about the next generation, you know, they're soft or whatever, but like there's a big debate, like how hungry are the next gen, like are these young kids because they've had it so easy. They know nothing but easy life, you know what I mean? It's like there's Dana White, obviously, you know, president of the USC. Like I saw a piece of content him the other day. It's like, if you're even remotely a savage and you're like a young kid coming through, you're going to be successful because so little people are these days. Oh, you'll murder it. You'll kill it. You'll murder it. But the, the issue that I'm finding with this generation, with the, the young ones coming up is that 
They're a, they're a generation of uh, save me handouts. What do I do next? They're looking around to their parents or to the government asking, oh, can you help us? And it's funny because we went through a period called COVID, right? And then what happened was the government stepped in. Okay, kids, you're not doing this. You're not doing that. We're going to look after you here. We're going to give you money here. We're going to give you money there. So they grew up in this kind of little phase of like, you know, the government or the parents giving them these questions, uh, sorry, answering their questions and, uh, you know, telling them what to do. So they've come out of this now. And then they're like to the employers, oh, do we get this or do we get that? Shut the fuck up. Like you're meant to do yeah. things yourself. You're meant to hustle. You're meant to find the answers for yourself. You're meant to search and seek, you know? It's, it's that classic fucking saying, well, easy times create weak men, hard times create a strong men. You know what I mean? And it doesn't have to be men. It's men, women, female. It's, yeah. it's how do you fucking get out of that? And it's, it's that, but it's also they're so used to instant gratification. They, they start a business or a side hustle two weeks in, four weeks in, doesn't work. So many people give up, but no, bro. Like it takes time sometimes, months, years to get whatever you're working off, off the ground, but you need to stick at it. Need, there needs to be a period of persistence. And I know persistence, resilience has been a big part of your journey. There's yeah. no way, tell me, would you be sitting here today if you didn't have like a lot of resilience and oh. persistence? All right, guys, just quickly, I've got some news. I've spent close to the past 18 months building the ultimate program that takes you through the complete process. And I mean the complete process of launching and scaling your very own e-commerce brand from zero all the way up to a million dollars plus per year. And now with this program, what you're going to get access to is 15 modules with over 100 training videos and 23 hours of in-depth content, taking you through everything you need to know to build a successful e-com brand. And this is the important part. This isn't just stuff that you can look up on YouTube. This is stuff I've taken from real lessons and experiences building Happy Skin Co. from zero all the way up to an eight-figure per year brand. You're going to get access to loads of custom tools, templates, and calculators that I've used to build and run Happy Skin Co. There's going to be one-on-one -on -one mentoring with myself and other expert coaches. And there's also weekly group Q&A calls with myself to make sure you're feeling completely supported throughout the entire process. And now what I've learned from consulting to everyone from people starting their very first e-commerce brand all the way up to brands already doing seven figures plus per year is that there's a process and a framework to follow if you want to be successful with e-com. Now, if this is something you're interested in, hit the link below and go to join.viralbrandbuilder.com. All the information's there and you can book a call directly with me. Otherwise, send me a DM and we can chat there. Anyway, let's get back to the pod. Man, my father is probably the most persistent and resilient person you've ever met in your life. We're talking, he lived in Saudi Arabia for 16, 17 years, left his family at the age of 15 in a war-torn country by himself, went to Saudi, knew no one, hustled there, worked his fucking ass off, right? Almost lost everything, came back to Australia, married, you know, my mum was you know, quite a, a beautiful lady, so I think he done well. <laughs> came with two kids, yeah. almost nothing, started his life in his 30s all over again, already having been a millionaire, having the best life, Rolexes, cars, the whole lot back in the 80s, and he's had to come to Australia, start his life again, almost when it, actually kicked out of the country, right? I shouldn't say kicked out, we were told to leave that we couldn't be in Australia anymore, put our fucking house for sale. I remember the signboard, the wooden signboard saying for sale, crying, saying we don't want to leave. We've been here for six or seven years. House never sold. Parents took it as a sign from God, said, we got to keep fighting and keep going, right? And we ended up, you know, with God's will, staying in Australia, working three jobs, 
Mum had no family here, catching the bus, driving a car, doing what she can to get us to school and whatnot, trying to survive. So you're growing up in that kind of environment and then being around my father where he's like the type of person, you, and this is what I say to everyone, um, give me a solution, not an excuse, right? I don't believe in excuses. Create me a solution, not an excuse. So I've always had the mentality of it can be done. we got to get it done. And then working in that construction where we were very known, my father and I, that, you know, say our job will take a week, we'll do it in two days. We'll throw everything at it. All the manpower, we'll get there at five in the morning. We'll leave to six or seven o'clock, even if the council's going to come and shut us down. We'll get the job done and we'll move on and we'll keep, you know, just keep belting through. So I feel that if you've got nothing to work for or if you've got nothing to lose, then what's your driving factor and what's, you know, what's going to create that purpose for you? You've got to have a, a driving factor. You've got to have a purpose. You've got to have a why. Why the fuck am I doing this? Why do I want to be successful? You know, what life do I want to live? I feel like kids these days are probably doing it for the wrong reasons. Well, let, let me ask you this. Obviously, hypothetical situation. You have, you have a son or a daughter, 16, 17. Yeah. Now starting to get, you know, start really seriously thinking about career. Obviously the parenting and everything that you learned goes way back, you know, from, from a child and they will see the way you behave and how you learn from your, your parents at a much younger age. But hypothetically, say you're a parent, 16, 17, and they're like, dad, I want to, you know, I want to be successful like you. You know, I, I've got a lot of big dreams. I'm not sure exactly what I do. Where do I start? Like what's, where, how would you shift the, you know, the, the thought process of a young, you know, 16, 17 year old that wants to be successful, yeah. but like they've been spoon fed everything at school. Everything's been easy. How do you, like, what would your advice be to so start reprogramming is this, for, is this for a random or for my own? Your own son. Let's say your own son, 16 years old. He's seen you, of it, course, it, but it, he comes it, to you at this point. It wouldn't get to 16. Yeah. I'd be conditioning my son and daughter from the age of two years old. Right, not you know, in terms of a dictatorship, but influencing them then in the right way in positive conversations, surrounding them, you know, with 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 work, words of affirmation, what life's about, you know, how to get from A to B, problem solving, you know, creating, you know, a community around us of friends and family that have the same, you know, dreams and you know, um, upbringing and values, right, to a point where. At that point, they have my kids are brought up with the same values and the same hustle. And if he ever comes or she ever comes to me with that, I'll sit them down and say, okay, why do you want to open up a business? Is it for financial? Is it for freedom of, you know, not knowing anyone telling you what to do? What's your purpose? Where do you want to be? Okay. And how do you feel like you need to achieve this? And I always say you need to start with yourself. You need to focus on being resilient training, having a clear mindset, eating the right food, having good friends around you and knowing that you are going to have the most incredible times, but you're also going to have some dark times and kind of just preparing them mentally for why and how and, you know, getting them to a point that when they do reach breaking point, they know that that's meant to happen so they don't feel like they're alone and just continuing having good conversation, I think. That's a good point as well because I feel like, particularly in like my main industry of like e-commerce. So many of these, you know, 21 year old life coaches, these gurus will paint the picture. Oh, you start an online business, click your fingers. You're going to make a thousand dollars profit a day. People aren't prepared for what, what the sacrifice is, is going to take. But like, I, I, but the way to get through that is connecting it to the why you talked, you, you spoke about purpose and figuring out why you're doing what you're doing. At what age did you feel like you started to develop your, 
inner motivation, that drive to, to chase something for this greater good, this greater purpose. And what does that look like for you? Um, I felt like from a young age, 18, 19, 20, I knew that I had to be someone and I wanted to be someone. For me, I, I was given no choice. You know, I was in a different situation. I'm the eldest son of an immigrant. I had no choice but to fucking make it in life. I'm not going to re- be able to rely on my parents for a handout. You know, we lived in a wolf pack kind of mentality where, you know, you had to own a house by 24. You had to have a car by 21. You had to have all these things. Otherwise, you looked like, you know, you, you looked as, as, a, as a failure. So at that point, I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to work as hard as I can to make it in life. And don't get me wrong. I could be a lot further than where I am right now, but I've had the best fucking life. Mm. I've lived like a rock star. I've traveled all over the world. I've experienced things that you would never believe. I've taken time off work for as long as you can, you know, think about. But I chose to live my life like that. I chose holding off getting married. I chose holding off, you know, investing in different things because I also wanted to be fulfilled and have the absolute best life. Because I knew at one point there's going to, you know, come to a point where I will get married, I will have kids. Or I will, you know, do the things that you're meant to do. So I don't feel like there's a right or wrong way to live your life. You just got to live it. Yeah. I'm the same, man, to tell you the truth. Like once you and once you make a bit of money, it's easy to get the, the context around what's really important. Like I'd rather make enough money that I have my freedom. No one tells me what to do. But like I'm the same, man. I could have, I made a bit of money five years ago, let's say when yeah. we started the business. I could have been an absolute fucking nerd, work 12 hours a day every day, not gone out, not had fun, not travel. But it's like, for, for what? Like yeah. for, for what? I want to enjoy the process of life. Like we get one shot at this life in this fucking form. Why not make it as epic as possible? You know what I mean? Like 100%. I, I, I'm all for working hard and, and making your dreams come true. But I feel like some people do that to the point they don't actually live their fucking dreams. Man, a hundred percent. Like there's points now where I've, there's times now where I reflect and I'm thinking, especially, you know, what COVID's done to us or all my family getting older, my friends are getting older and, you know, getting on and having married getting married and having kids and there's, you know, times where I reflect and I'm like, thank God I did all the things I did because traveling in your twenties, in your late twenties, your thirties, your mid thirties, your late thirties, your forties, it's all different. You know, anyone that says to you, uh, you know, save your money, save your money. But traveling when you're fucking 60 is not the same when you're no, traveling when you're no, 20 no, or 30 no. yeah. or doing all these things that you're doing, you know, in your twenties and your thirties is very different. And all the times where, you know, the boys would say, let's hang out or let's play cards or let's go here, let's go there. And you couldn't be bothered. Now we're like, fuck, I wish I took every single opportunity. Because that doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't happen, man. Life gets on. Mm. People get in the way. Things happen. People, you know, pass away. Family gets sick. You know, you don't know what life presents you. You just don't know what life presents you. As long as you're being, you know, you're living, you you know, within your means and you know that tomorrow you'll be able to food in your mouth and, you know, be able to sleep under a roof. Just go and live your fucking life. Yeah. And it's all personal. Like you were saying, like whatever your ambitions are, the lifestyle you want and, and like make it about, I feel when you're, when you're setting your goals and your vision for life, not just about how much money you make. That's, that's a part of it. Cause that's going to be the fuel that allows you to live the life. But what does your life look like? Mm. You know, how do you, how do you spend your time? How much do you get to travel? Who do you spend your time with? Do you enjoy, yeah, maybe you've got a business, but do you enjoy the people you work with in your business? Mm. Is it stressing you out to the point you're fucking going gray and you're losing all your hair and you're fucking hating it? If the answer is yes, like for me, it's like, fuck, 
you sacrifice so much to be in business, to start a business, you should enjoy it more than anyone. Yeah. Well, a lot of people say they own a business, but do they really own a business or do they just have a job? Mm. Because having a job means that you're stuck in your business. Owning a business means that you don't need to be really involved in your business as much as, you know, you should be involved. Yeah. You've set up this business that allows you to come and go whenever you want. And that's owning a business. And at that point when I realized, okay, do I actually own a fucking business or do I have a job? Mm. And I was like, I have a job. How do I own a business now? And I worked and I did everything I can. I set up infrastructures around me, people around me, invested in people around me to be able to have a, have a business and enjoy my life freely. And sure, did I make less money? I did, but I do whatever the fuck I want <laughs> and whenever I want. And that's the you know joys of owning a business. Yeah, it's like, do you own your business or does your business own you? Exactly. And, and I, exactly. Had that, I had that moment, you know, a few, you know, probably two and a half years ago as well, where I'm like, fuck, I've, I, you know, I want, I've seen a start in this podcast for ages. I want to do all these other fun things in my life. But because I've built a successful business, I feel like I need to sit in front of this screen, not see everyone for 12, 14 hours every day because, you know, I've created this. But no, fuck that. And I could have, you know, scaled business even more and, and, and done all these amazing things. But like, I would have been depressed, man. What's, what's the point of, of, of sacrificing all of that? Like for sure, I want to make as much money as I can on my own terms. Mm. And I truly believe I will. But, but I want to, I want to take it back to your story and your journey a little bit. Mm. Now, the, the career in like the, the, the nightlife industry, promoting events and stuff. Talk to me about how that starts. How do you, how do you fall into that? I imagine you're, you know, late teens. At yeah, that point. so I'd, I'd ran like a couple of under 18 parties when I was younger. Like Pulse and shit. What were they called back in the day? Man, I can't remember. But I I've done a few, a like, so few funny. community halls and church uh, halls and I used to attend all of them. Yeah. Right. And I, I ran, I ended up running a couple of parties on my own and they were pretty good. And I remember when I was um, 18, I, uh, was walking in the city and uh, I bumped, uh, I bumped into this dude and I'm like, you know, he's, he, he gave me a flyer. I'm like, what's this about? He goes, Oh, I come into my club right now. And, and I went in and I checked it out. It was, it was pretty good. It was all right. I'm like, well, what's this about? He goes, do, do you want to be a promoter? I'm like, what's, what's being a promoter? And he said, give out flyers, create a guest list, get as many people as your name on their guest list. And I'll pay you $3 a person that comes in under your guest list. I was like, sweet. And I did it and I started killing it. And then after I think two months, I said to the guy, literally not even, I think two or three months, I said to the guy, hey, um, fuck this, I'm going to do this on my own. He goes, what do you mean? I go, bro, um, I go, I just think I can have a crack for it. So I remember once I was being, I was on a date, I was on a date with this girl and um, at the time it was called World Square or Equilibrium. It's, you know, where World Square is at the moment. It used mm -hmm. to be like a two or three level club. Yeah. And I said, let's go up to this bar. And, and I bumped into a guy. Um, his name's Raul. Shout out to Raul. He knows who he is. <laughs> um, funny story because it's become a full circle. And he's like, oh, $25 to get in. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not fucking paying $25 to get in. He goes, why? I go, because I do what you do. And I don't feel like I want to pay. I go, but if you want to do something together, let me know. And he looked at me and he's like, all right, go in, have fun. <laughs> And we ended up catching up, right? Yeah. And we ended up running a night on a long weekend. We printed 70,000 flyers. We came up with the name. It was called Strut, S-T-R-U-T, right, Strut. And I remember it was like on, the on this little flyer, it was like these girls' legs in high heels and it had all the DJs on there. 
I think, yeah, and we've just printed 50 or 70,000 of these flyers and we just smashed it all over Sydney, right? Long behold, um, and you had to email your guest list in or whatnot or text it. Long behold, it was like nine o'clock and him and I are just waiting to lean our thumbs. 9.30, 10 o'clock comes, there's a line down the street. A line down the street and I was like, what the fuck have we just Blows done? your mind when you do Bro, these things it, for the first time, crazy. right? crazy. And I was like, the feeling of seeing a thousand people in the venue having the best time that you've brought and you've created, I can't explain it. It's better than any drug Where in the does world. your brain start going after experience? Oh, you're just like, it, it's like drugs. Yeah, you yeah. You become so addicted to that feeling because there's the highs and the lows, right? And you're continually chasing that dopamine hit of, you know, having successful nights. And then from that point, I went on and started doing stuff in Oxford Street at Good Bar, did a few things around the city, and then I moved into stuff in the cross, uh, turned, the, turned the Lincoln into a rest, from a restaurant into a nightclub. Then I went over to the club, Dragonfly, Le Panic, um, the club, Piano Room. Um, heaps of the main spots. Heaps of the main spots. And I was just throwing parties, you know, had a weekly party, had monthly parties, had, you know, secret parties just all over kind of Sydney. So what period were you in the cross? Because I want to ask you about that because it's, it's really sad that these next generation of like kids don't get to experience the cross like, oh, like in its full glory. And like, yeah, it was, there were seedy parts of it, whatever. But like from when I was like 18 to like 21, 22, I was probably oh, 21. I was probably at the cross almost twice a week, like Friday, Saturday, almost every time. And then I was kind of getting over it a bit when the lockout law, you know, came yeah. in and started ruining it. But talk to me about what it used to be like in the, in the glory days. Okay. So the first time I ever experienced the cross, I think was in 2004 or five or maybe six where there were no ethnic people in the cross. I'm talking really? like it was very clean, very good looking white people. Right. And I remember my mate and I snuck into a nightclub. We walked in early. We realized that's how desperate we were to get in. We get there at the nightclub at fucking nine o'clock. The cleaners, <laughs> people the, in. the cleaners are there. Yeah. We look. I see the stamp. I don't want to say which nightclub. I took the stamp, stamped myself and my friends, ended up selling the stamp to people to get in. We got in. I love it. I don't think we got busted, but we got in, but we never came back. Right. We said one time, one night, and it was the hottest club at the cross at the time. And we had the most incredible time. Fast forward two years later, came back to the cross. Still very, you know, it was incredible. The crowd was beautiful. People went out to have a good time. People went out, you know, to catch up with their friends. You could go out to the cross on your own and you would be safe. You would have the most incredible time. Um, you would make new friends. And you'd come back with, you know, incredible memories. And it, it was the glory days. I would say from 2005 to 2009 or 2004 to 2009 were the glory, glory, glory days of the cross or maybe early 2010. Yeah. Past 2010, it was done. Mm. But I've got a conspiracy theory on why it kind of did collapse. Yeah, why? You want to hear it? I want, I'm fuck. I love this shit. Dude, I used to go out and the whole area, I was, I got into 18, 2010. Yeah. So I got like a couple years where it's still good before it fully. 2012, it fully died. Fully died. Yeah. yeah. 
But like, bro, it's like the whole area was a theme park for adults. Yeah. Mines everywhere, yeah. fucking shit going crazy. on. Crazy. Right, my life, honestly, was like the entourage. <laughs> no, no, I'm not exaggerating. That's I'm sick, talking dude. like I was getting into any club that I wanted for free. Yeah. Drinks were for free. I would walk in with, you know, a crew of people. We'd be bouncing between four or five nightclubs a night more, ended up at hotels, house parties, and having the most incredible time for four or five years straight. My my idea of why the, the cross collapsed was, okay, so you've got promoters, right? Guys like myself and four or five other guys that were controlling the parties within the cross. We, you know, we were doing good parties. We had promoters working for us. We are coming up with the concepts, the names, creating the guests, the music, the door policy, you know, we were killing it. And the way we made money was we'd make money off the door, right? People cover charge and sometimes a percentage of the bar that was mainly off the door. And that was running fine. And then what happened was the club owners started to realize, hang on a second, these promoters are making a lot of money or there's money out there that we can grab. So what they started to do was contact our promoters and say, hey, we're going to start running our parties in-house. Come work for us. We're running parties internally. These will give you four, 500 bucks a week retainer plus your $5 a person that you get in. And these people thought, fuck, what a sweet deal. We're yeah. going to be working for a nightclub during the week. You know what I mean? What a mad deal. But long behold, what happens is, right, these guys come and work for this venue. There is no creative director behind that. There isn't the person that's coming up with the concepts, motivating these people, getting it all together. So they've come in. They're working for these venues now. And then what, what we started to see was it, was it was okay for three months. But when they run out of ideas or when they run out of, you know, being persistent or resilient or recruiting, the quality of the event starts to drop. And when the quality of the event starts to drop, you're not getting as many numbers into the venue. So when you're not getting as many numbers into the venue, what do you do? You relax your door policy, right? Because you become desperate. So the person that was never allowed to come in or was difficult to come in is now all of a sudden going into this nightclub. Then all of a sudden you've got this nightclub that was once hot, which is now not. And then everyone realizes, nah, it's not as good as it used to be. A bought, a bought, a bought. Nightclub owners go, you know, what the fuck's going on? They start recruiting promoters that have no idea. A lot of them live, you know, out west or the north, right? Because they got really desperate because we've moved on. And the guys that worked for them have moved on because it's no longer cool. They start to invite their friends and, you know, people that have never entered the cross before. And that's where it all started. So the quality of the nights, the quality of the people and the purpose of why people were coming out started to diminish because it wasn't controlled from the from the get-go. So when they when they tried to cut everyone like all you guys out, that's when it started to go downhill. I believe so, 100%. It's inevitable. Like, you know, if you lose the quality of a venue and the purpose of, you know, why you're coming to this venue and you start to relax all the policies, right, you're going to start to attract, you know, different clientele or different people and that's where you're going to start to see, you know, issues. Before, man, you know, you had tats, as, you know, as hard as, you know, as sad as it, sad it, is, as it is, but if you got like visible tats or you looked the Middle Eastern or, you know, you weren't wearing the right clothes or you didn't have women with you, you were no fucking way. barred. No way. You weren't getting in. Yeah. I was only lucky to get in because I knew people and I worked in the cross. So it was a hard time. Imagine lining up in a period where you're like, am I going to get in tonight? Yeah, that's crazy thinking back. Like, and race, ra being racist, being racist, 
was accepted. It was like, the policy. No, right? no, it was the policy. Yeah. Like imagine lining up knowing, fuck, am I getting into this club tonight? Am I getting into this club tonight? Mm. Just based on the way you look or dress or who you're with. Yeah, it's crazy. Sometimes we go out with big groups of boys. I, I didn't have any tats back then. And I was like the, 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 the little white Aussie, Aussie looking boy. So we were always sweet. But if you'd ever go in and not think about it and we're just like, you know, six boys, they're just like, please, come on. Like you're not yeah. being serious, are you? Yeah. But so it's the cross now, like a lot of it's been rezoned and shit, right? It's like, done. It's Kids done. these days and will never understand or be able to experience the true, I would say, wonderland of Sydney. It was. It was. It the was, one. man. The buzz in the air. Imagine you're having, you know, 10, 20,000 people within the same area all at night, bouncing from club to club, having an awesome time, eating, you know, pies and kebabs at three, four in the morning. It was incredible. The music was good. Everything was good. It sounds like it was even better, like the five years before. Like I got, it was still all right. It was before it died. Yeah. But man, that was, that was fun. So where, where do you go from there? Is that when you, you saw all this, you saw this coming, you kind of, because I know you're very good at spotting trends and changes in culture. Correct. Where do you go next? Where's your head at? Yeah, from, so from intuitively and exactly what you <laughs> said, I'm very good at like, you know, vision, vision wise, like foresight or not. I was like, this is going to die within the next year or two. I'm out. I don't want to be amongst this. It was getting rough. Yeah, yeah, It was yeah. getting rough. There was a lot of, you know, bikies and, 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 and gangs and, and, and trouble starting to come up into the cross. And I was like, this is fun, but this could end very So it wasn't nasty. really like that prior? Not as much, man. No, at all. Because I had that crossover period, so no. I, I saw a bit of that. No, around, no, no, know? it wasn't. And even when it started to, it was still okay and controlled. But then it got to a point where it was just uncontrollable. And I was like, I've had my fun. I've made my money. I did what I, I did. You know, I got to experience things that, you know, you could write about in a book and no one would believe you. <laughs> I'll hold these things to my grave and I'm out. And then I was like, I need to do something in my life. And probably, probably longevity wise, good for you anyway, right? And I was exposed to things that kids these days would, would be like, nah, there's no way or or how, or whatnot, but it, it shapes you for who you are. And it taught me to have, you know, resilience and to be persistent. And to be honest, you have to have big balls to play in that, to, that, to play in that scene as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have to, you, you got to be, you got to hold your own. In you have to, have to hold your own. I think growing up with, in Punchbowl in the Lebanese community, I think I had no choice. Yeah. That's why I remember in school, I don't know if we were recording when we said this. I'm so glad I grew up, grew up in, in, in like the Southwest, went to public schools. Like we, when, I went, when I started high school, there, there'd be fucking massive punch-ons like two, three times a, a week. And it's like not just one-on-one. -on -one, it'd be like all the fobs versus all the, like, all the Lebo boys. Yeah. And they just punch on, but it was normal. Yeah, yeah. It's like you go out, you see a fight in the street and the cross. You're like, oh, yeah. But like I feel like you go with some private school kid. They're like, oh, my God, what's going on here? It's good, li it's good life, man. Like. It's good life experience really is growing up and, and seeing different shit like that. I feel like it makes you stronger. You got to take the good with the bad. Oh, yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? You, you, you got to understand that sometimes being exposed to things is not necessarily a bad thing, mm -hmm. but I also think it comes down to having good parenting. Yeah. Right. I, I was very lucky and blessed to have very good foundations, you know, and education through my parents. Um, and through, you know, their, their, their values and their morals and everything, you know, would revert back to, you know, karma and religion and, you know, doing the right thing. And to be honest, my mum, my mum's a saint. My, my father's a saint. They had a strong grip on me for as, as long as they could. 
if it wasn't for them, yeah, I could have easily mm. took it too far. Took it way too yeah. far. But to be honest as well, I think it's just me naturally, but like, cause I, I, I know I go back and speak my old high school, usually about once a year, talk to the kids because like, I'm just naturally, I only look at the positives or I mainly look at the positives because like, what's the point of thinking of the negatives growing up the way I did? Like, it's not going to serve me, but like, there's definitely ways that it, it did hinder me. Like I didn't know about business until, you know, 23, 24, I didn't know about the possibilities. I didn't have any friends or any friends, parents that had their own businesses. So it's like that there are negatives there, but if you're one of the kids in that situation, don't worry about that. Focus on the fucking positives. You you have more control and more of a say in your own life and what you do with your future than than you know you may be led to believe when you're when you're when you're growing up in in, in the area. You know, but that's why you're successful because you weren't you weren't spoon fed. You were mm. curious and you wanted to find out more and do things more for yourself. Sometimes giving the answer is not necessarily the right thing. Hundred percent. You know, sometimes going out and trying to find the answer is what's gonna you know get you to where you need to be. Yeah, I, I, I realized that I went, because I went to Kasula High um, and then I went to a Catholic school for a bit, but I was like, you know, very, you know, like I get in trouble for my tie wasn't tied right. Like I could see I had earrings even though they're out, like all this stuff. But like they drive you, they they make you study, they make you do this so much. And then you get out to the real world and no one's doing that. Like in Kasula High, like they'd say, yeah, Simon's due, you're home or whatever. Yeah. No one fucking holds your hand and forces you yeah, to yeah. do shit. You do it because you want to do it because, you know, you've got some – motivation long-term to, to put the work in, but moving past the, 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 the cross and the nightlife, where do you go? You spot that trend. You're like, I don't want to be involved in that. It's going to end. You, you've got the vision. So what's next? Is that where, where you get into hospitality? Yeah. So I go and open up the first little espresso bar called Jad's place. Pretty much. It was just a little box on a plan, had no seating. I signed the lease. I cracked the deal, took six months off, open up this espresso bar I was cooking falafels at home, falafel, I should say, at falafel, home. Falafel, that's it. Yui doesn't let us was, say it the yeah, wrong way. Yeah, I was cooking falafel at home <laughs> with my mum, yeah. baking trays and trays and trays of schnitzel. And what I realised was, okay, it was in Burwood, and I looked around me back in 2010 or 11, and I'm like, okay, what's missing? Got a beautiful new building, you got, you know, government uh, tenancies. What's missing around here? You got corporates all around you. I'm like, what's missing is specialty coffee, artisan bread, great gourmet sandwiches and pastries. You still had your old school go and make your sandwich on your tip-top bread and choose what you want and you had your lavata, nothing else to do against lavata. Yeah, press your button. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, whatever, like your old coffee style. I so said, I'm going to introduce something fun, something fresh, something real, like, you know, tailored, be more expensive than everyone, but deliver very good quality. And I started, you know, I created, I went and started learning how to make sandwiches so I went out to all the bakeries, all the, you know, sandwich shops and bread shops and did my own research and started experimenting. I think I made over 50, 60, 70 sandwiches at home, just experimenting. See what works, goes what together. works, different sources. I started making all my own different sources, started cutting up everything, uh, did trials, testing it. And then um, I did, yes, yeah, so I, I started doing that. And then I approached the coffee company campus at the time. And I said, this is my idea. I was 24 or 25. They go, you've never worked, you've never owned. <laughs> I go, no, they took a risk in me. They were a very big coffee brand at the time. They were, they were a draw, massive draw card. They only had, I think, one other flag further away from me. And that was, I go, okay, I need draw cards here. Campos is the draw card. Yeah. Plus, you know, Lux Bread. So I started to bring in, started to collaborate with big, well-known brands within the city in the East and bring them to, to the inner West, Burwood. 
So, and I, and I did it. I had good specialty coffee, great sandwiches, you know, um, great pastries. And, man, I um, did 10 days work experience at a cafe for free. I walked into a random cafe. I said, hey, can I work here for free? He goes, why? I said, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm opening up my own place in a month. I just want to work here. I'll do whatever it takes. Because come tomorrow at 6 a.m. I was there at quarter to six. He, he thought he saw a ghost. <laughs> Didn't know that I would rock up and I did everything. Did a crash course. Pretty much learned everything I needed to do. And then it was just me and a barista, man. I did all the sandwiches. I would get there at three or four in the morning. I'd make all the sandwiches. He'd make the coffees. But then there was a time where if he called in sick, I was stuck on my own. I'd have to come in at 2 a.m., make all the sandwiches, try and make coffees while I'm putting sandwiches Serving on. Serving people. Became this big theater. I became so good at it and I'd have to call my mum in and I had this anxiety of like, fuck, please don't call in sick. So I never got any sleep because the business could only sustain two people at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I grew it to three, then I grew it to four. And this little shoebox of nine square meters. And we ended up pumping and I ha ended up having it for nine years, but it was the hardest Hardest point in my life. Yeah. Like I'm talking, I never took a day off for two years straight. Um, I had people steal from me. I had a guy saying he's going to the toilet and never came back. Um, it's mid-shift. Mid-shift. Um, I've, I've experienced anything and everything you could ever think of when it came to running that business. Those early years in business, it's like that fucking, you know, crash course that you did, not the 10 days, like the crash course in business. Yeah. Have you, because I, I feel like I, it's, it's, I'm only like, you know, five, six years into business properly, yeah. but like all that drama that you had to deal with makes everything easier that you have to deal with now. It puts things into context and, and you get used to dealing with pressure and yeah. problems and overcoming this stuff. Well, I, I, to be honest, I know myself, I only work well under pressure, right? Like I only work well under pressure. That's just how I'm built. I'm not, a, I'm, I'm a very cruisy person till you put pressure on me and that's when you just see me shine. So I like being in pressure cooker situations. I thrive off it. It's like, you know, playing an origin match every week. Yeah. I love, you know, the pressure of, of you when know, there's no other choice, but to perform, no right? Other choice to perform, right? That's when you say you can really handle That's it. That's when I can, you know, really see if I can handle it. But man, being a part of Jad's place, that little espresso bra to getting 18 seats at the front and having to learn all the sandwiches, make them yourself, drive the business. And I came up with all the names for the sandwiches, did the branding, did the marketing. And I turned this little spot, ended up, you know, making best top sandwiches, you know, in Daily Telegraph and whatnot. And I turned this little espresso bar into this spot where everyone wanted to come and hang out and corporates and made, it got to a point where it was that busy, the building started to complain and I had to put a dividing wall up to try and um, usher people into the foyer to be able to get in, right? It just became that popular. And then I started to pop off on Instagram and I was doing stories and, I was creating, you know, um, characters out of the staff that were, you know, working with me and whatnot and vlogging the whole thing. And then from there, I opened up the picnic. So I went from 12 or 18 seats to 100. Big from jump. Four, four staff to 25 or 30. And that was a fucking crazy story in itself. Before we get into the picnic and yeah. that big jump, what looking back that like nine years with Jad's place, yeah. what's like, the most important lesson you took out of that chapter? Don't be confined by what you've got around you to determine your success, right? Or don't be confined of 
you know, what your tools are or what, don't be confined with the tools and resources you have to determine your success. I was working within nine or 10 square meters, right? I, I could only sustain one or two staff, but it didn't stop me. I was paying the, you know, the strata manager guy whose office was behind me, right, with food and cash to be able to store stuff in there. I was, you know, doing catering at home and taking on catering gigs for all corporate companies and, you know, doing them at home and bringing them in. I wasn't confined to being like, okay, sorry, I, c I can only do what I can do within my own space. I learned that you have to look outside of your space and create, you know, opportunity from what you have. I didn't, from the outside, people didn't think it was just a tiny space. I was taking on anything and everything I can and I said yes to everything, whatever it was, whatever it was. So that's the biggest lesson I know. It doesn't matter how big or how small your business is. It's down to you and how much you want it to be able to create more opportunity for yourself. I, I love that because it can seem like if you're if you're just living within the four walls of you know what normal people look and, and see, and this is why I want to talk to you, the way you see opportunity, it's like it might seem like there's restrictions, but if you just think outside the box a little bit, you'll be able to identify new ways to grow, new ways to do things that if you're just playing, you know, the cookie cutter approach, showing up, doing it, doing everything the same each day, it will limit you to 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 grow. Now, another thing that was interesting about what you just said is, you know, that 10 days going to work for, for some random cafe to to kind of get a bit of a crash course in running it. You know, today it's 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 become much more more common for people to go, you know, find a mentor or work for free as a way to, you know, learn and upskill and it's becoming a lot more normal but like people like Gary V, you know, the big people with big voices in the business and entrepreneurship space will, will put that forward. But you know, whatever, 10, 15 years ago, no one, no one was saying that. What, where did you, why did you know that was the right thing to do? Where did that come from? I had no other fucking choice. <laughs> Necessity. I, 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 I didn't know anything. I obviously watched a lot of YouTube, sat at cafes for days and hours watching people, recording them taking notes, taking photos, looking into like their cool rooms, looking into behind the bar and taking notes, writing things down, going up to baristas and people and saying, oh, can you show me, can you teach me? And then I just thought, okay, intuitively I was like, I need more. I need to understand more. And it was, a, it was the biggest blessing in disguise. I'm so grateful for that opportunity to do the 10 days because it really set me up in order for me to continue. Obviously I had to learn along the way and do things. And that's the thing I was learning along the way. Like you got to understand, I walked into an industry with zero experience. I'd never worked in this industry before. So I had to learn on my own accord. I had to learn with my own money. I had to learn with my own mistakes. I had to learn with my own risk. Um, and that's why it might, it's probably taken me longer than I expected, but I did it, you know, in my, my own way on my own terms with that. And I think learning from your mistakes, particularly when you're, when it's your first business is so important. Is there, maybe there's nothing that comes to mind, but is there a mistake or a lesson from that first nine years at Jad's place that stands out? That you're like, fuck, I'm glad I learned that. And I won't make that mistake again. Fuck. That's a tough one. Just trying to think of some mistakes that I've made. Um, let me think of a mistake that I would really would have learned. Don't trust people too much. Um, really draw the line when it comes to employees and friendship um, because as sad as it is, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and people are searching for opportunity and all the good that you've done and, 
and all the good that you've implemented. Um, it's sad and I hate to say this, especially publicly, you know, situations may occur in people's lives which causes them to act differently or behave differently and they'll go out and they'll, they'll turn their backs on you. I, I had a feeling. So you have to draw the line. I had a feeling it would be something people related. It so often is, you yeah. know, because it's like they'll see like an opportunity to do something. And yeah. What you think the relationship is, isn't always the case yeah. when, you know, stacked upon, you know, things going on in their own personal life. So it's interesting now that jump from, you know, 18 seats out the front to a hundred from yeah. two, three staff to 25. What was the biggest challenge about that step up to the picnic? Um, the biggest challenge I think was when I won the tender, I was like, I need to do something incredible here. So I'm very concept driven. Yeah. You know, everything starts with a story, a concept, an avatar, a feeling, an experience. You know, I like to create the experience from the branding. You know, I remember going through over 22 logos just for the picnic, right? Through three, four graphic designers, right? Just to get it right. The color scheme, everything, the crockery, the interior design, everything. And um, so that was like a, a massive concept in itself as well as Jad's place. And for me, the challenge was, okay, I'm doing something that no one really has done in Sydney before. I'm creating a, a concept that's actually suited to its space. I called it the picnic. It was in a park. We served picnic baskets and blankets. We served food outside on blankets. I love it. But we were also a really, you know, high-end brunch cafe. We were more expensive than anyone within the whole inner west, right? Uh, people said to me multiple times that it's going to fail and you don't know what you're doing. So for me, the challenge was obviously getting it started and getting to that point. I knew we were going to be busy and I forecasted to do X amount. But the biggest challenge for me was when I opened the doors, right, and we had our wait lines almost every single day and on the weekends for a year, two years straight. And, you know, say you forecast to do X amount, but you're now doing X amount within the first week. You double your staff. You've got to double everything almost immediately while you're trying to run the business. So you're actually scaling while, you're, while, while you've just opened. Uh, and that was the biggest challenge, I think, at the start, you know, going, fuck, all right, we're growing so quick and we're, we don't have the capacity. So I'm trying to maintain the business, trying to operate the business, while also trying to sustain the business in terms of its growth with hiring. And then, then you get to a point where you settle and you're like, okay, how do I keep coming relevant? Mm. And that's when my marketing skills came in and I was pushing and creating new trends and inviting people and doing things that people usually wouldn't do and creating new items. And I had a couple of big moments at the picnic that, were, that went viral over the four or five years that I owned it. I would say probably two or three moments over the many things that I achieved there. <clears throat> so that initially was the biggest challenge. Mm. And then obviously leadership, I think as well, you know, how do I do all this plus lead and encourage and inspire and motivate, you know, 25, 30 staff uh, while trying to keep this ship on its course. It was fucking mental. It was a reality show in itself. It, it's, particularly like when a business is scaling super fast in the early days, it's so easy for shit to break, particularly yeah. if you haven't had a chance to, fully set the process and foundations in now. A hundred percent. That's the biggest lesson I learned. Yeah. And that's why I was able to launch me successfully. And, and, and that's where I want to go. And yeah. you've done it now. You've gone up to another level yeah. with, with MISC yeah. in, in Parramatta. 
three times you've you've started and, and gone up and have been extremely successful in the hospitality space. Yeah. What do you put that down to? Patience to- and learning from your experiences and your mistakes and patience and resilience and persistence and perseverance. They're all related to each other. You know, uh, before I launched MISC, I promise you, I was like, okay, I remembered five or six years ago how I fucked up with the launch of the picnic. I didn't fuck up, but obviously what I explained to you and I said, I'm not doing that again. No way. Heavily, heavily invested into pre-opening. Heavily. Overhired. Made sure we had everything ready from everything, our systems, our procedures, our kitchen. We done trials, then we done two or three soft launches. We did everything. So when we launch, people felt that would be open for like four or five months. They're like, "What is this your second week?" We're like, "It's our second week." They're like, really? I'm like, really? And that obviously is a true testament to the to the team that were involved. But there was a lot of effort in the pre-opening. So when we did launch. We didn't have to, you know, experience what I experienced at the picnic. That's where the the, the patience and the planning, the preparation comes in. In yeah, very costly as well, by the way. Of course. Yeah. Now I um I live in <clears throat> I live I live in West as well. I live in, in, in Newtown on the city end, uh, and I see good food there. Great food. There's a lot. There's fucking. There's there's a million different restaurants, bars, cafes. It's why it's why I picked there. You know, like mm. there's certain things about the area I don't. I, yeah, I you don't hold love. off the weight quite well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's certain things about the area I don't love. But I love being in such a cultural hub where like this, I can just walk out, you know, two minute walk, I'm on King Street and there's just, there's just the energy in the air. I love that. But one thing I've realized, and you speak about the fuck up you had with the picnic, yeah. which was you had too many people coming, which is obviously in a way it's a really great problem to have. But I walk up and down King Street all the time and I'll see restaurants, bars, cafes open and, you know, maybe one in five will, will look semi-successful. The amount of places that I see open up, and it breaks my heart, man, knowing, knowing what it's like to be in business and, and people, particularly when it's like the opening a shop like that, you put investment in Everything, time, fit outs. Your whole life. And there's just no one coming in, man. It breaks my heart. And I feel like, oh, obviously I'm experiencing business. I, I'd love to be going to help them. I don't know how to run. Like it's, there's obviously certain things that would yeah. apply, but like what, like what's, I, I want to get some value out there for the people that yeah. do are yeah, in the hospitality me, space me, because yeah. like some it's, it, it, it's, sure. it's fucking hard for them. It's like, oh, yeah. how do you, if you open up a new spot, you might have a sick menu, yeah, yeah. you might have an awesome fit out inside, yeah. but just no one's coming. How do you get people to, to, to come? Even if you might be 10 meters off the main street, you might even be on King street, like on a main street and still people aren't coming in. How do you get people to, to, to take notice, to come in, to try you guys out and have that first experience. Cause I see so many places struggle and it's heartbreaking. I'm going to say something a little bit taboo and probably something I shouldn't, but I would highly advise anyone that's looking into hospitality at this current moment, don't fucking do it. Like that's the honest answer. Am I going to sit there and say, yeah, hospitality is mad. It's the best fucking career. Sorry, it's the. So I would not sit there and say hospitality is mad. It's you should open up your own restaurant or your own cafe. Nah, man. There's fucking smarter ways to make money right now in 2023. It's very, very, very tough with the cost of goods and the cost of labor at the moment. Your margins yeah. are very slim to almost none. The risk versus reward is extremely high. There are a lot smarter ways to make money in hospitality. Sorry, there are a lot smarter ways to make money other than being in hospitality. So, but if you are, 
For the ones that have done it. For the right, ones yeah. that have done it or if you're going to do it and you want to do it, right, I would encourage you and I would help you and you can reach out to me and I'll tell you everything. But to answer your question, you've got to look at everything holistically, right? It's like when you uh, want to, you know, build a great physique, you know, you don't just eat well, you, you know, how far do you want to go? Some people track their macros you know, and, and whatever they call it, they track them. Some people go to the gym twice a day. They do yoga, they swim, they do that. The more they do, the better results they get. The more things they tick off and cross, the better the result they get. Same thing was hot with hospitality. You can't just go in, see a place for lease, go, fuck, the rent's cheap. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to just, you know, open up a, uh, a brisket joint because me and my father love cooking brisket on the weekends. And because we love it, we think everyone else is going to love it and we're going to succeed. No, no, no. What's missing from the area? Why are you doing this and what's your skill set, right? Who's your support around you? How much money do you have? And, what, you know, how much money are you willing to lose? And the way I look at it is, you know, when you, there's two ways you can open up a hospitality venue. You have a concept and it's a solid concept. You've worked on it. You know, let's call it, I don't know, a burger shop. Right. You've got a burger shop concept, right? You've worked on it for ages. You've done the branding, you've, you know, you've done the marketing, you've done all the blueprints for it. You know, the interior design, what it's going to be. And you're like, okay, now I'm going to go find a location, right? And you go out and you try to look for a location that you see that there's no burger shops around and you know, your, your risk of potentially um, succeeding or failing, you know, is, 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 sorry, your risk of failing is quite low because you're providing a, a service and an offering to an area that doesn't really have it. Then the other way to open up a hospitality venue is you find an amazing location and you're like, okay, what can I do now with this location? That's how I've done it. I've just found really good locations and I'm like, okay, what's missing from this area? What should I bring? How can I do it? What can I do to market? And when it comes to market, I believe the biggest thing is the pre-opening marketing. That's the biggest thing. You know, invest in uh, I think mystery is good. Having a balance of being a little bit mysterious, not giving away too much, getting people excited, doing a countdown, creating cool flashing content to get people talking, you know, put little feelers out there through your own social media just to create really buzzing content to attract people and go, what's going on here? What's happening? Back in the day, it was all about let's show people the build, let's get them on the journey. That's what I was doing with the picnic, right? So the way I marketed the picnic versus the way I marketed MISC was completely different. The way I marketed the picnic to the pre-opening, I got everyone on board with the whole journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? The build, the everything, it's coming. So people were investing in it. But the way I marketed MISC was I kept everyone out of it and very mysterious, showed them little bits and pieces of what it could be or what's to come, kept it super quiet, only released little things, built up a very good teaser campaign and then came out with an absolute fucking bang. And then people were like, holy shit, what's going on here? What's this? There's obviously two different methods. Depending on the era that you're working in or the social media that you have around you, it can work. Now with the rise of TikTok and vlogging and buying into people's journey, I feel like for a hospitality business, if you're going to do it really well, jump on TikTok, showcase the journey, get people to invest in you and your belief and why you're opening a hospitality venue and what's involved and the struggles and the joys and the wins and the highs and lows. I think you'll do really well on that end because people are investing into the 
personal brand as well as the success of the business. So they want to come out and support you. Um, and another thing is create a good culture. You got to create good culture and you can't think about the short-term dollar. The amount of free coffees, free drinks, free everything we've given out, I would say over a million dollars. Crazy. Over a million dollars just in comps. Just in comps, just building relationships, building rapport, building the database, comps, 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 comps. All the successful ones have built their own community within their space, right? Yeah. And it's, it, it's interesting that you say how much it's changed just from five years from the, from, from the first, well, from, not from the first, from, from Picnic. Well, yeah, Picnic was 2016, so. It, it, it yeah. seems like from the outside looking in, and I'm not like sitting down having yeah. half an hour conversation with these people, but people will open up the doors and they'll just, Think that's enough. Okay, no, I'm no, gonna no. walk past. You gotta have PR as well. Yeah, press releases, articles. Um, you gotta infiltrate. You gotta make noise. Somehow you've got to attention hack. Yes. If you're not attention hacking, you're not gonna succeed. But you've got to find out how am I going to attention hack. Find out. It could be through your personality. It could be through your personalities of your staff. It could be through a particular particular item that you saw on your menu. You have to continually ask yourself, how am I going to attention hack? How am I going to grab someone's attention online and offline? That is the key. And, and how much of it now is, that's where I was going to go next, online and offline. Obviously, yeah. you guys are killing it on social media. You can like all those, you know, teaser content and, 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 and the community you can build. And, and, and that is such a useful tool in my world. Mm. How much is online versus offline now? Like how can these like startup businesses yeah. leverage both? And, yep. and is, is, is offline still what's important in your local community, your local area? hundred percent. So that's a really good question. And it's also almost extremely um, relatable. So we're about to launch dinner service, right? So we've got an online strategy, which is teaser campaigns. You see it, something's coming soon. What's going on? Show snippets of like, you know, miss get dark, right? Social campaigns, social videos, TikTok, Instagram. That's our online strategy. Our offline strategy is building a VIP database of all the customers that have walked in, contacting them on the phone, emailing them, messaging them dropping them down into a funnel of like be the first to experience Miscat night and then do a call to action with an offer of 50% off drinks for that week, getting them. So there's that online strategy of socials. Then there's the offline strategy of building the database with everyone that's walked in. So what we've got is we've created a little uh, plastic, I would say, or Perspex VIP card with a QR code and we give it to people who we think that's had a really good time. We go scan this You'll be the first to enter our VIP list. They put their details on. They're on our VIP list. That goes through a, it's called up viral. That goes through a, a funnel. And we get, we can be able to set up a campaign for that to be able to email them and SMS them offers. And if they share that to their friends, they get an offer as well. So we're building out that campaign. There's, then there's the traditional EDM campaign. And then there's obviously through the communications on the floor of day to day, building up that hype. Dinners are coming soon. We're about to have a mad time. Get ready. Give me your details. I'll drop you on. Bring your family and friends. So it's it's um it's it's holistic. It's not just a let's rely on social media approach. No fucking way. Yeah. Dude, this is such fucking good information because I feel like too many people will start, like you said, start some sort of 
restaurant, cafe, whatever, because him, yeah, like the, me and my partner love cooking this or me and my dad love cooking this and they'll forget that, yes, you're a restaurant or you're a cafe, but you're, you're in business still. They'll forget that you're in business and you need to market and attract attention and, and do things like PR and attention hack just as much as any, like just as much as my business needs to do online. Mm. And it's, and it's, and it's, yeah, I just wish there were more, more education out there. And I'm, I'm sure there is, but it comes down to like, how much do you want it as well? Of course. You know what I mean? And you got to get, the, I think the key is with anything that you do with business, right? You got to get people excited, mm. right? I, I learned one of the biggest um, secret weapons I've got now is I'm able to get people excited and to believe into my vision and what we're about to achieve. And that comes from tone of voice, your personality, your vision, how you deliver your vision. If people aren't on board, whether it's your employees or your customers, and they're not excited, you're not going to have the result. You've got to create that excitement of, fuck, we're going to miss out or I want to be part of this journey because this is going to be good for me and, or, you know, I believe in this vision. That's the key as well. You've got to have excitement and good energy around you. 100%. And even like... Sometimes it just comes down to, it can be as simple as if you're not that sort of person that doesn't naturally or might not have this gift that you have to see this, to have this vision. It's like, just think about if you were walking on the street or, or if you're a customer, what would make you sit up and pay attention? Like put yourself in the customer's shoes of like, what, what's going to influence you to take action, right? There's, there's so many things in that, that people can do. It's like some people will give up or they'll close up shop and they'll, and they'll be like, I tried everything, man. Yeah. I just, we, you know, but did they? But did they? But some of them, you know, there is bad luck, I believe. Of course. But there's also, I feel like there is bad luck, but I also feel, oh, this is crazy, man. So there's a point and I feel like there's, it's like a dark point in your life where you're like, do I have bad luck or do I just need to keep digging in this dark trench to get out and do whatever it takes? Mm. And it's at that point where people just stop. And I've been there many times where I'm like, I feel like I'm going to fail or I feel like it's just the right thing or I feel like, fuck, I just can't break through. But you just got to keep going because if you just go the other way and go, yep, it's bad luck, it's the economy, it's downturn, it's whatnot, you're going to fail. And I experienced that obviously through the picnic, but where I really felt that was when COVID hit. When COVID hit, within 10 days, hand on heart, I started up a new business called The Picnic at Home. I had brand new packaging, brand new. I had a website with Shopify. I had um, stickers. I had um, shipping tags, the whole lot. Within 10 days, photo shoots, the whole lot. And I was delivering meals all over Sydney in my Range Rover at the time. And I knew I wasn't going to make money. I knew it. I, and I said it to my account. He's like, Jad, you need to stop. You're not going to make money. You're actually going to lose money. And I said to him, for me, this is not about money. For me, this is about staying relevant, attention hacking, keeping my staff employed because I know when this fucking shit ends, right, we're going to be the first things on people's minds, right, and they're going to come back straight to us because we've been pioneering through. And long behold, that's what happened. Well, the busiest cafe outside of as soon as COVID ended or whatever, the first rush, well, the biggest, busiest cafe. I think where people can struggle and, and even like where it'd be easy and, and to, to, to struggle with hospitality is like, like you said, you can't be in it for the short term buck. Like you're nah. thinking the way I'm hearing you speak and talk about all these things. It's like, you're not thinking about how, how much money can I make this week or next week? It's how much, what can we build for the long term? 
but it's easier said than done to be like, I'm just going to, you know, give out comms and, you know, break even and all that stuff. What, What part of your mind or perspective changed that you realized I'm okay with that and I'm willing to put trust in myself in the, in, in the journey, in God, in the universe, whatever you want to call it. And that, because that's almost the only way to be successful, mm. but it's difficult to, for so many people to commit so much if it's for long-term and not short-term gratification. Big part of it got to do with my father. He, he says a quote to me, he says, back then when construction, quoting a lot of jobs. And he said to me, never try get rich off a job, or never try get poor off a job. Just make what you need to make and keep moving forward. Right. And at the point when I was 24, 25, I took a step back to my ego and to my salary from making so much money to making nothing for two years, being stuck, you know, indoors, not being able to travel, do anything. But I knew that 10 years from now, I'll be where I want to be and where I, you know, where I'll be where I want to be in everything I've ever prayed for and manifested. And it's come. Everything that I've prayed for, everything that I've manifested has played out from the people in my life to everything that I've had because I believe that if I continue on the course that I'm continuing on, it has to give. And obviously you've got to be a good person. You can't be a fucking cunt because, you know, that's, that's, that's bad karma. But I knew if I kept going, it, it, it's inevitable. It's it's gonna it's gonna pay off, but you just got to keep pushing through. And there, there, there's a lot of freedom in that as well because with life, with business, whatever, there's ups and downs for everyone all the mm. time. If you're going with the emotions of every up and down, yeah. it's it's gonna burn you out so quickly. It's yeah. when you can finally put trust in the process and 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 develop a belief and a knowing that you'll get where you want to go and and the challenges and the problems are in your life for a reason. They're, yeah. they're there to push you in the right direction. It, it might not seem like something that's good right now, but if you truly do have the belief that yeah. it's pushing me where I need to go and I'm going to continue to be a good person and and not rip people off, and if you can do that, in my experience, and it sounds like your experience, what you realize is things do tend to figure themselves out if you can stick to it. It's when you are easily distracted, easily brought down, you give up easily that this whole journey of life and in particular business, because it heightens everything so much becomes too much to handle. Yeah. It's my thoughts. Anyway, I want to, I want to move on. Mm. Um, we can't talk about Jad and your story without talking about Gogglebox, obviously. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk to me about how all that happened. Is it something you planned? Did it pop up out of nowhere? Um, so back in the day, Maddie and all the boys were in a group chat and, and Maddie reached out and he said, Hey, you guys want to be on a TV show called Gogglebox? I think we half of us ignored it and go, well, you know, what the what, what's Gogglebox? You know, what's the what's this about? And we at the time was very busy, like, nah, we're all good. I don't know, nah, 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 nah. And then Maddie reached out again, and I'm like, all right, look, I've always wanted to be on TV. I think I'd be good at it. Sign me up, whatever it is. He, he comes back to me and says, um, Dad, I think they want a trio. Would you do it, you know, you and I and Sarah? I said, yeah, whatever. Now, hand on heart, I promise you, at this point, I still didn't know what Gogglebox was. I didn't even research it. I didn't even look at it. I was that busy. Like, I was just in my own lane, doing my own thing. I just launched the picnic. I was traveling and whatnot. I had no idea. So Maddie calls me and he said, um, come to my house tomorrow for, a, for an audition. I said, what do you mean? 
goes, we're doing a fucking audition through Skype. Come to my house. It, was, it wasn't even through Zoom, it was through Skype. That's how long ago it was. I said, all right, I get ready the next day. I go get a fresh fade. I go buy some clothes, <laughs> not knowing what this is about. And I'll get to Maddie's house early. He goes, it's at 6. I get there at 5.15. Never like me. I was very late. I'm always late. I was late to this podcast, right? Yeah, so, you said that worry. He's yeah, always late. Yeah, I'm always late. Well, I'm, I'm similar, late. to be honest. If I'm on, if I... It's a Levo thing. Yeah? If I'm yeah. five, ten minutes late, I'm on it's time. Early. Yeah, it's I'm on, on time. time. You know what I mean. So I get there early and I start YouTubing and, and googling Gogglebox. What is Gogglebox? And I watch a few clips and I'm like, Nah, this is not. This is not for me. <laughs> this is not right. I'm not. I'm not doing this. This is. This is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And I said to Maddie, Bro, I didn't get this. Hey, like, who, who even watches people watching TV? I don't understand. Yes, it's okay, bro. Look, look, look. They're calling us from Skype. We're not gonna get on anyway. Look, look, look. They're calling us. We can't back down now. I said, all right. <coughs> so we did this. We did the audition, and the audition was they hold place cards of like images, random shit. I think one was the Pope, one was the Simpsons, one was like an Aboriginal flag, one was you know a landmark item, and they say, say the first thing that comes to your mind. Bang! Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. I'm not fucking shy of saying what comes to my mind, regardless of anything. And Maddie and Sarah are the same. And we're just spitballing. I said, we'll get back to you in two weeks. They got back to us in a week, so we're going to do a live audition now at the house. And at that point, I said to Maddie, um, I'm going overseas to Ibiza. I was traveling hard that year. I was having the best year of my life. Lost weight, went all over the world, went to Brazil, Mykonos, Lebanon, Europe. I was yeah. living it, right? I'm going to Ibiza. So he tells him, look, Jad, going to Ibiza. Ah, tell him to stay, tell him to stay. Yeah, tell him we need an answer because I'm leaving. Like, I'm going. That's it. Long behold, they brought us on the show. We thought it was for an episode. We're sitting in a boardroom with our contracts and they're like, nah, nah, you've got to do 10 episodes <laughs> or nine at the time. And Maddie and I and Sarah look at each other and go, fuck, we're fucked now, eh? Like, <laughs> And you're in it, yeah. We're in it. And then we set, we set, we set pillars. You know, I set a pillar as well. I said, you know, if, if I'm gonna be on this show, I need to set some pillars. I do a lot of this in every in every part of my life. I set pillars back to the purpose and the why. And I said, okay, these are the pillars of why I'm gonna be on the show. Number one, I want to make sure that the ethnic community is painted in a positive light, right? Number two. Got to make sure that I always give back. Just give back in whatever way it is. And that's what I do now, you know. People that reach out, they've got depression, suicide, anxiety, bullying, cancer, whatever it is, we give back. I give back in my own way. Uh, whether it's support, inviting them to my restaurant, responding to their messages, sending them videos, taking the time to take photos and having a conversation with them, you know, in person. we got to give back. And the third thing is have fun. And as long as them three pillars are always met or until they kick us off the show, then we'll be on. So, and that's it. The rest is history and it changed my life forever. Yeah. Did it turn out to be what you expected or so much more? Uh, so much more, but because I was, because I did it for the right reasons. Like I never did promotions and nightclubs to be popular and to be the guy that everyone knew. I've always been popular. So for me, fame or, or being recognized and being known is not foreign. I've always been recognized and known and being amongst massive networks and building networks. It wasn't foreign to me. So for me, where I saw the, the real power was 
how do I continue to be the same person I am online and off offline that when people know me and that people that have known me say he's been the same person for the last 20 years. And I think that's where the real power comes from. And that's being, you know, humble and humility. I think that's, that's the number one thing in business and in life. Remain humble. You're allowed to talk about your personal brand and sometimes, you know, showcase what you've done. But in your actions towards people, humility is key. Humility and the thing that attracts people and it's probably why you're so uh, well-loved by people is because what I've noticed in business as much as life and I did acting for, for a bit before this, authenticity. Yeah. If you can truly show up as yourself 100% and not dim your light or your quirks, your weirdnesses, what makes you you, 100% and you don't care what other people think, Yeah. nine times out of 10, people are going to fucking love you for it or they won't like you for it, but that's fine. You're not meant to be everyone's cup of tea. But that authenticity is what is your, is your superpower. No one can try and be jad. If you try and be like, all right, I'm on TV, I'm going to try to be this character, people will either see through it or be like, I can't connect to that because it's not real. Mm. But that like down-to-earth, humble authenticity mm. is, is, is your superpower, I truly believe, in, in, in every facet of life. Thanks, bro. I appreciate it. I can see that in you as well. You, you, you've got to like, there is so much bullshit out there. People aren't stupid anymore. Yeah. You know, there's so much fluff online, you know, and also you have a responsibility, believe it or not, you know. I have a responsibility that because I'm on TV and I have a platform, that I have to somewhat be be real because anyways, I always am, but also to for the future of society. Yes. You know, you've got kids that look up to you. You know, you've got kids that might mimic the words you say or the actions or where you go and what you do. You know, people use this word like I'm an influencer, right? What are you, who and what are you influencing? What, selling a fucking product and getting money because you're doing a post, right? I feel like true and real influence is influencing people in the correct way, especially the younger kids and our future generation. That's being an influencer, influencing people to behave and think in the right way and to be able to touch people in the right way. That's what I believe a true influencer is. Not, it's not about selling products. You know, anyone can sell a product. It's about have you influenced society to become better? And that's my purpose too is while I'm doing this, how can I influence the younger generation or people that are going through what they're going through to get out of, you know, what, they, what they've been through or to become better or to find the light? And I think that's where real success comes from. Particularly, I think particularly important as well, in 2023, the world we live in now, you know what I mean? To have positive role models speaking their truth to the the next generation because it's so easy for people with the media, with social media to be controlled and to be steered down the wrong path. And it, it does take, you know, a bit of balls or, you know, for lack of a better word, to stand up and 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 stay stick to your values when when it's not easy, you know what I mean? So I think it's going to be can continue to be extremely important now. I have to ask, is, have you experienced, is there any downside to being on TV, to being a public figure that you've had to deal with, um, hate, whatever it may be? 95% of the time, it's always been extremely positive. Because of the, it's also because of the format of the show. The shows are very lighthearted, fun, general population, you know, having a laugh kind of show. It doesn't really expose you to much negativity, you know, in all credit of, of, of the show. But you're gonna get, you know, the one or two people that might have something to say or to comment on. 
but I just ignore or, you know, recently I just respond to them in a, in a very sarcastic way publicly. But all in all, it's been extremely positive. I'm pretty grateful for it, to be honest. You don't take me as the person that would get too offended by what a stranger oh, nah. messages you on Instagram. I, I love it <laughs> because, you know, I then think to myself, I only have love for this person. And I've written that publicly. I say, hey, I appreciate your, your comment or your feedback, but I just want to let you know I love you. And they trip out because if someone's actually sitting there writing a, a hateful comment towards you, it means that there's something deeper that's going on in their life. And I empathize with that. And I, and I truly hope that, you know, if by writing me a hateful message is going to release what they're feeling, then great. I'm a form of therapy for them. Yeah, dude, that's fucking, um, it's uh, 1000% agree. It's like, to be in the position in, in life where you're going to send people hateful comments or try and bring them down. I mean, I, I, I never want to seem like I'm speaking down to you, but if you're someone doing that, like my advice would be look within because like you're probably hurting for some way that you're conscious or unconscious about at the moment. 100%. But look for the answer. You know what I mean? Trying to bring other people down is, is, is not going to make you feel better long-term. Maybe you'll get that little bit of a, Oh yeah. For 10 seconds, you think you're a mad cunt and then, yeah. then what? But yeah. It's um, jealousy and ego. It is. Yeah. yeah. Or like you've like you, a, a lot of the time you've triggered something in them because they're not living their truth or chasing their dreams or putting themselves out there to start this business or to ask that girl out or to do whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah it's always a reflection on them, but tell me, we'll wrap this up. Yeah. What, what's next for Jad? What's next for Misk? You mentioned night service coming soon. What's, yeah. what's the vision for this next so, chapter of life? So for me, you know, I've always been interested in hospitality. So, you know, obviously we're looking at expanding, you know, the hospitality arm within Misk and outside of Misk, you know, in terms of maybe a bar in, in cool. Sydney. Yeah. Uh, I am looking at potentially um, going over to Saudi um, towards the end of the year. I heard that's popping off. So I just want to see what that's about. Again, I mentioned my father lived there for 16, 17 years and I happened to be born there because he was living there for business. So I kind of am drawn back to see mm. – what that's about. I imagine it's a different world now than when he was there though. Exactly. And um, believe it or not, I'm very interested and keen on heading towards the e-commerce space. Beautiful. Such as yourself and, and, and Yui. Yeah. I feel that um, naturally I'm building towards, a, you know, a network that I can be able to provide value to and sell something to my network and use my marketing skills and my journey to be able to push something that, I can just make money while I'm sleeping, you know, the cliche saying. Yeah. Uh, and I'm excited by that. I, I do a lot of my own research when it comes to e-com. You know, I've got you as a mentor. For sure. Well, you didn't know that, but now you do. Not fucking um, beautiful. Right? So I've got you as a mentor now. But I'll tell but you I'm e-com. I'm super keen on it, man, in terms of all that. I've done so much research in terms of funnels and marketing and capturing and blah, 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 and cost per lead and acquisition. and I'll tell you, shit. e-com with one of the most important. So the funnels and shit. Yeah. Is, is probably number two, right? Yeah. But you've got the biggest skill already and you've done it multiple, multiple times and it's probably even going to be easier to do it online because people are taking action online. It's generating hype. It's attention hacking. If you can do that and get people to take action in the physical world, yeah. you're going to have a lot of success doing it uh, in the digital world. So I'm sure you'd be successful if we can help in any way. Yeah, fucking the door is always open. condition. I've left my arms like this today. Yeah, t- yeah there we go. We'll, right. we'll hook him up with the I've fucking goods. Look at him. I've left my arms like this on purpose today. 
We're going to get Yui to pull out like a little razor or a clipper just to give him and then we're going to zap it. I'll tell you what, you've got a, you've got night service coming skin. soon. We're going to zap it with some happy skin. We, we've got we've got something that's coming up new that no one knows about yet that's a bit of an innovation in the game as well. So we'll fucking – I'm Lebanese, so we'll, I'm, a we'll very, I'm a very good uh, test – you know, test, test, test on me, a hundred percent. If it works on me, which I'm sure it does, yeah, it's yeah. going to work on anyone, but I've heard good things. I'm going to keep it in my car and just keep zapping me, keep zapping <laughs> myself every time I see a new hair that comes out. Beautiful. Just don't go anywhere near my eyebrows. No, no, no I couldn't right. do that to you. Don't want to da- you're, you're on TV, can't damage the no, money maker, you know what I mean? Look at this, it's all lined up. It's perfect. It's perfect. Same thing with Yui. Yui, yeah, mate, I, I yeah. think you're a little bit better groomed than Yui, yeah. to be honest. I've seen if you are... Uh, Where's a lower cut shirt? You yeah. know, he's not as he's not as groomed, but we'll um we'll sort him out as well. Done. And uh where's the best place for people to find you on Misc online or in person? Uh Jad Funk on Insta, Jad Funk on TikTok, Misc Parramatta, M-I-S-C Parramatta on both TikTok and Instagram. Where are you guys in in Para? Inside Parramatta Park. Oh, awesome. You're gonna come to our night service. Fucking oath, we will. We'll oh. take the boys and we'll we'll come out. Yeah, we're gonna have a good time, we'll have a laugh. Sure, for sure. All right, my brother. Anyway, brother, thanks so much for coming Man, in. Great to meet you, bro. Chat. Appreciate Honestly, it. You've made me feel very comfortable. Awesome. Glad um, to hear it. And I'm, you know, very uh, excited to hear about your journey when we do catch up. For sure. And I wish you the most incredible success for the future. Likewise, brother. Appreciate you coming in and being so authentic and raw and open with us. So, yeah, had fun. All right. Cheers, boys. Done. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, Do yourself a favor, do me a favor, do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.